Now, I'm going to go into the scripture uh, on which today's uh, teaching is based. It comes from John chapter 4, verses 4 through 30 and verse 39. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming When you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town, made their way toward him. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And this is God's word. In John chapter 4, we learned last week that Jesus, he crosses every boundary. He crosses every boundary to meet the Samaritan woman. And uh, their encounter, through this encounter, that woman experiences new life. Living water. That's what he offers her. 
That's what she receives. What is it? Water, we said, it cleanses. Water refreshes. Water renews. Water, you need water to live. Water gives us life. It's synonymous with the work of God's spirit throughout the entire Bible. Now, if you're new, if you weren't here last week, this is the second part of a two-part sermon. And so you're going to have to bear with us. We talked about Jesus crossing every boundary. We talked about Jesus quenching our thirst. Today, we're going to say that a relationship with Jesus challenges our motivational center and, two, makes us beautiful. That's how we're renewed. That's how we're given new life. A relationship with Jesus challenges our motivational center and makes us beautiful. First, a relationship with Jesus challenges our motivational center. What does that mean? Jesus here is talking to this woman. And the woman says, sir, give me this water. We know that she came from a long distance. We know that she came at the hottest part of the day to avoid the crowd because of her shame, her sin. She's been cast out of every circle, every ring. And so she doesn't want to come back here to draw water. She says, give me this water. And Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. Jesus says, yes. You don't have, what you said is true. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the man that you're with is not your husband. It's a hard saying. That's the name of the series. The hard sayings of Jesus. It means that it's tough for us to hear sometimes what Jesus calls out. But it's also something that if we chew on it, if we savor the richness of what Jesus is saying here, we're going to be able to find new life. In verses 15 to 26, this conversation that Jesus has with this woman seems very choppy. We said this before, but it's very important. And they knew, they totally understood. It's not choppy for them. The woman is looking at Jesus. And as Jesus calls out, Right in the open, you've had five husbands. The man that you're with is not your husband. The woman says instantly, I can see that you're a prophet. I can see that you're a prophet. I have a question. Where do we worship? Where is the right temple? In other words, what she's really saying is this. Look, I get it. My life is a mess. How do I make it right? I don't, I'm not part of any circle. And my life is crazy. How do I get right with God? Where do I meet God? Where can I go to experience God? In other words, you must know. You must know. Where is the temple? Where do I worship? Because the temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. It's where you find access to God. It's where you meet God. It's where you come to know God. It's where you experience God in those ancient times. And so, because it's where you experience God, it's also where you're taught about God. It's where you teach about God. It's where you apply what you learn about God. It's where you give as a response to God. It's where you sacrifice for God. It's where you find your center, that spiritual center. The woman's saying, yes, I've had five husbands My life is a mess. My life is spun out of orbit because I've been longing for intimacy all my life with men as a replacement for God. And so I realized that my life is off its axis. It's off its center. How do I make it right? How do I make it right? I need to go to a temple. I need to get right. I need to go to a temple to find a priest. But I need to go to the right place. 
I need to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice. The woman's asking, I'm trying to get right. I need a temple. Is the temple here or is the temple there? You see, the Samaritans and the Jews, they rejected each other's views of spirituality in a sense, their views of God, their lifestyles in accordance with that ever since the time that Israel was taken out and held captive in Babylon. So a very, very long time. And they were practically at war with each other because of these views. And so the Samaritans, they didn't quite believe that the Jews had a real sense of God. They didn't believe that the Jews had a true sense of God. They believed that their temple was the true temple. They believed that their prophets were the real prophets. Jesus here blows apart this woman's understanding. She says, if you're a prophet, then where's the real temple? If the temple is the center of life, lived out in faith, and I'm completely disoriented, I need help. What does Jesus say? Woman, a time is coming and has now come when you will worship God neither here on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What is he saying? What he's saying is before you went to this temple or they went to that temple, but I'm about to do away with all temples. I'm about to replace all temples for good. In John chapter 2, Jesus, remember this passage? We looked at this a few weeks ago. Jesus overturns the tables in the temple, chases all the money changers out, and they ask him, what authority do you have to do this? And he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again. And the writer, John, writes that the temple that he was speaking of was his body. And now here, in John chapter 4, Jesus tells this woman, the time is coming and has now come. And whenever you see in the gospel according to John <clears throat> that Jesus referring to um, the hour or the time, he's referring to his death. He's referring to the cross. So what Jesus is saying to this woman is, the time is coming for me to die. I'm about to die. And when I do, I will do away with all temples for good. My death My sacrifice is going to provide access for anyone, anyone who would want to be intimate with God. What he's really saying here is this. He's saying the reason why you've had so many men in your life is because you're looking for him, that ultimate him. Because if you find that guy, Mr. Perfect, If you have intimacy with that person, then maybe you'll be able to keep him. It's not just a physical thing. It's not just an emotional thing. Jesus is saying here, it's a cosmic thing. It's a spiritual thing. And every time you're with someone, you're thinking, this is it. This is going to be the one. And it's not. And your life is not going to improve because of it. It's not going to, it's that, in fact, in this case, he says it's getting worse. You've had five men, five husbands, and the man you're with is not even your husband. It's getting worse. The one you're with is not even your husband. The reason why we're anxious, we're alone, or groaning, or working, or sweating, or longing, and the reason why you're outcast is that you place men as your motivational center. That's the core motivating factor in your life. That's the reason why you do this. That's the reason why you do that. 
It's all kind of set up. And we do it unconsciously because it's in our nature. It's in our spiritual DNA to hook our lives into something apart from God and believing that that one thing is going to satisfy us. What is Jesus doing in one conversation, this seemingly choppy conversation between he and this woman? And they get it. They're talking. They're aligned here. He's tying that woman's longing, her deepest longing. He's tying that to her shame. He's tying that to her thirsting. He's tying that to her worship. And he's tying it to the temple all together. And he says, you're looking for that one person, that him, just like you're looking for the temple. It's a spiritual thing. Because when you find that one person, you say, this is the person that's going to make my life okay. Well, there's only one place that you can go to in those ancient times to make your life okay. And that was the temple where you meet with God. It's a cosmic experience that no man is intended or designed to satisfy, that no earthly temple can satisfy. Verses 25 to 26 is remarkable. The woman responds and says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And Jesus responds and he says, I who speak to you am he. Now, in the Greek, that phrase is ego eimi, I who speak to you am he. It's translated, I am. I am. It's the same phrase that God in the Old Testament In the book of Exodus, Moses has to go to the Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses says, what if they don't believe me? They're going to ask me, who sent me? What do I say? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am. In other words, I want the temple. We want the temple. You want the temple. Because you are longing for an experience of ultimate spiritual intimacy with God that no man, no man on earth can possibly fulfill. But you're still desperately trying to get it on your own, without God, apart from God. And so, for this woman, now she's hiding. Now she's alienated. Now she's ashamed. And now she's alone. And she's thirsty, and she's tired, and she's empty, and she's sweating, and she's working and laboring all by herself. It's corroding her body. It's corroding her soul. Jesus is saying, I am the access that you need, the very presence of God. I'm the one that you need. I'm that spiritual intimacy that you've been seeking all your life. I'm the spiritual intimacy that you've been looking for and thirsting for all your life. Make me that motivating factor, that core motivational center in your life. And you will find that love and you will find the intimacy that you need and you will never thirst again. It will change your life. Now, some of you are saying, but I don't struggle with relationships with the opposite gender. I don't struggle about these things, men and women, sex. I don't struggle with this. But then you turn to your career where you turn to your work and you're just working your body and working your soul and you're living in anxiety and you're living in depression because you're not getting 
where you want to get, when you want to get there, and you're just constantly working for the approval of your boss, you're still looking for that in him. You see what I'm saying? You're still looking for that, that deep sense of approval. And that has become your center. That has become the center of your life and your faith. That's your husband. And some of you, you've had five of these. And the one that you're pursuing right now, guess what? He's not going to get you there either. He's not. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's your career, accumulation of wealth. For some of us, it's very simple like our health, security, home, approval. It still will not satisfy. And you will be left thirsting, anxious, and depressed. And we've been saying that this generation is known to be the most anxious and the most depressed in world history. That's what scholars and commentators are saying. Some of us have been chasing for that, after that one thing. We've been through rounds and rounds of it. We make the same mistake over and over again. You've been worshiping the wrong God in the wrong temple and you're sacrificing yourself. You are paying the price. That's worship. You're putting your body and your soul and your heart and your strength into it. And Jesus is saying the central place of worship is not material. It's spiritual. It's cosmic. I am the ultimate temple. I am the ultimate hymn, the one that you've been looking for. I am the ultimate Mr. Right. This woman had six men. Six is the imperfect number. It represents incompletion. It represents dissatisfaction. Jesus Christ becomes that seventh man. Seven is the number for perfection, completion, rest. We rest on the seventh day, don't we? The earthly temple used to be in Jerusalem. Jesus says, tear it down and I will raise it up in three days because the temple he had spoken of was his body. It's my body, he says. I'm the temple. The earthly temple had an altar. And on the altar, there was blood. There was a sacrifice. Now, there's no altar because Jesus Christ is that altar on which the blood was spilt and the sacrifice was made. The earthly temple had these two giant candelabras, these huge candles. They said it would light up the east side of Jerusalem. There's no candelabra now. You know why? Because Jesus Christ declared in front of those candelabras, I am the light of the world. The earthly temple had a table, and there was bread on that table. Bread represented life, deep satisfaction in God, fellowship with God, intimacy with God. I imagine that's probably why nowadays when you go up to the third floor or before pre-COVID, right, you go up there and you would have bread together. You would break bread. That's my guess. Because it represented intimacy with God in the context of community, life. There's no longer any bread. You know why? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
So Jesus Christ is our temple. Jesus Christ is our altar. Jesus Christ is our light. Jesus Christ is our bread. And every one of those things represented the centrality of what life is. Life when Jesus Christ is at the center, the true center. Make him the center of all your motivations. Make Jesus Christ the source of your deepest longing. C.S. Lewis says that when you're thirsty, there is water. When you're hungry, there is bread, there's food. But there comes a time when you're thirsting, you're hungering for something that you tried everything and it doesn't seem to satisfy. It doesn't mean that that thing doesn't exist. It means that what you're longing for is not of this world. If you're trying to get intimacy, if you're trying to get access, if you're trying to get approval any other way, you will end up like the Samaritan woman. You're going to try to find satisfaction and fellowship and light and clarity and forgiveness any other way. You will be used up like this woman. You will be wasted away like this woman. Now today, you may not just burn away, right? No one, lightning's not going to strike you, but you're going to work to death. You're going to labor and sweat and try and try and try. And there in your heart, there's going to be this deep grumble of, why don't I get what I deserve? Why am I not getting what I'm working for? You're going to be burnt out. You're going to be consumed. You're going to be thirsting to gain some form of approval in your life. Some of us use church that way. Some of us come to you. Don't get it any other place, but you want to get it here. This is the place where I'm going to work and try and strive. And so this community becomes the only community, and it's got to be perfect, and you've got to do it your way on your terms. Church ain't here for your terms. We're just trying to get some form of approval in life. We long for it. We're willing to die for it. And Jesus says, woman, I am. And I long for you. I've crossed every boundary to come to you. And I'm going to die for you. Make me your center. What happens when you do? When you do, you will discover the beauty of Jesus. The beauty of Jesus Christ who died for you. And it's going to make you beautiful. Now remember, in verse 6, this entire passage, the setting, the context of this passage, it takes place at Jacob's well. Later on in verse 12, the woman asks Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? In Genesis, where did Jacob meet his wife? He met his wife Rachel. Rachel was beautiful. Rachel was ethnically pure. Rachel was sexually pure. She was acceptable. She was in. And Jacob met her at a well. Jacob had a father. Jacob's father's name was Isaac, also in the book of Genesis. And Isaac, guess where Isaac met his wife? Isaac met his wife, Rebekah, at a well. Rebecca was beautiful. Rebecca was ethnically pure. Rebecca was sexually pure. Rebecca was acceptable, approved, in. Each of these cases, a man meets a woman at a well, 
Someone draws water from the well, and the woman, upon hearing the news from the man, runs home, brings the news from the visitor, and later on, the male and the female, the man and the woman, become husband and wife. They marry. In each of these cases, the woman is pure. The woman is ethnically pure, sexually pure, and she is beautiful. Centuries later, by Jacob's well, in John chapter 4, Jesus Christ, the greater Jacob, Jesus Christ, the greater Isaac, intentionally goes out of his way to Samaria, goes to Samaria and meets this woman at a well, except this woman is ethnically mixed. She is impure. She is morally and sexually impure. She's outcast. She's out, unacceptable. Why? Why does he do that? In fact, if you notice, there's no mention of any water being drawn here. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is the living water. That woman left her water jar behind. That woman left, the, left back the one thing that was causing that deep sag in her shoulders. And the weariness and the fatigue, it was gone because she had taken from living water that only Jesus can give. And he is perfect. But He's not seeking after this woman. In his compassion, he's not seeking after this woman because she's pure. He came to her to make her pure. He's not seeking after her because she's so acceptable. In fact, the prerequisite for him coming to her was that she was unacceptable. She was impure and outcast. Because he sought her to make her acceptable. He cleans. He refreshes. He renews. He gives new life. We receive new life in Jesus because we receive the truest love, the greatest love. Every, any other person says, I love you always, forever, is a liar. Because we're broken, and one day we're going to pass. Only Jesus can say, I love you always with an everlasting love. I will fill you with my loving kindness. Jesus Christ, the most perfect, the most beautiful person who ever lived, says that to his people. And that is what gives us new life. That's what quenches our thirst. It ends the search for the right temple because Jesus becomes our temple. She becomes right with God. And knowing that Jesus crossed every boundary to seek her out, there's her approval, there's the validation she's been looking for all her life, there's the acceptance that she could never get from someone else, but she got it from Jesus. And it shaped her, and it changed her. Look, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, we're all lost. We're just a bunch of chemicals that have collided eons ago and somehow became life. And that means that there is no such thing as morality. There is no such thing as good. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, Everything is lost. We should be skeptical of everything he says. We should be skeptical of him. But if Jesus Christ is who he says he is, 
we should trust everything he says. We should kneel, we should surrender and submit everything to him. And we should be skeptical and dismiss anything else that we've even remotely been tempted to replace him with, our own desires. Why is Jesus the greater Jacob? Why is Jesus the greater Isaac? All other ancient and modern fairy tales, <clears throat> watch any romantic comedy, you watch, you watch any, any, uh, any movie, read any romantic book in the classical age to now, in the ancient times to now, it always begins with somebody like a Rachel, somebody like a Rebecca, pure, fair, deserves a prince, a prince who's going to risk his life to save her. But the gospel turns that story upside down. The gospel, in fact, is the anti-fairy tale. You know why? And it's a greater story. It's a greater story because only in the gospel do you have the ultimate Prince Charming. He is the king <coughs> who rescues somebody who is unacceptable, impure, outcast. No one would come near her. No one would dare care to save her. She is lost. She is hopeless and he rescues her not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life to make her pure, to make her acceptable, to make her beautiful. And it's a greater story, and he's a greater Jacob, and he's a greater Isaac, because this is true. It's true. How did he do it? On the cross, Jesus says, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. And it wasn't just a physical longing. It wasn't a desire for water. He was longing for God. He was longing for his father, the most intimate relationship he ever had, his center, his love. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost my center. My orbit is now off. He's saying, I'm alone and I'm burning up because the wrath of God that we deserve as a penalty for our sins is now pouring out on Jesus. And he's saying, I'm in torment. My life is drying up. I'm experiencing cosmic dissatisfaction, disorientation, emptiness, and I'm thirsting after God. My soul's longing for God. And I'm alienated and I'm forsaken and I'm out. I've lost my temple, my worship, my center. You know what happens when you're thirsting? It starts with disorientation, and there's suffering, and there's a deep burning, and they say it's a torment like you're in hell. The giver of living water to this woman so that she could drink is on the cross, thirsting cosmically and alone, and dies. And the moment he died, what happened? the veil of the temple that gives access to the most holy place, the holy of holies and the temple where God and his presence resides. The veil, the door, one time a year, a man, a high priest who consecrates himself is able to enter in through that veil and make sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Once a year, that veil, no one can enter in. No one's got access but at that moment, the veil that gives access to the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. 
the doorway was blown open in a sense. That means now anyone can have access to God. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up. I'm going to do away with all temples once and for all. Anyone can have access to God. Anyone can be intimate with God through me. It's not that you don't need a temple. You do. But Jesus becomes your temple. It's as if somebody from heaven grabbed that veil from the top and ripped it, God himself, saying the debt is paid. The price has been paid. Jesus is saying to the woman, that hour is coming. That hour is coming. And friends, that hour has come. The hour of his death. And he endured it to the end for me, for you. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus Christ was abandoned so that we could be loved. Jesus Christ became ugly so that we could be made beautiful. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus Christ became ugly. He became sin so that we might become beautiful, righteous. You know what righteous actually means? It means acceptable before God. In Jesus, you have every form of love to the greatest degree. Jesus Christ crossing every boundary. He scaled the heights of Calvary. And he descended the depths of longing, separated from God, hell for you. You see that? Because if you see that, that's the end of thirsting. That's the end of thirsting for us. Your job can't do that for you. Your job will die for you. Your boss ain't going to die for you. Your spouse cannot do that for you, cannot fill you that way. Your children cannot fill you that way. Oh, we think they can, but they will not. They're all broken. They're all incomplete as well. We all need a perfect lover, a seventh man, our true bridegroom, our true husband, who will love you perfectly. It's got to start there. See Jesus' love for you on the cross. And there is the perfect love. There is the worth. When you look at the cross, what do you see? There's your worth. There's your validation. No other person can say you're worthy. You know why? Because they're broken too. A broken person telling another broken person that they're worthy is not going to help you. Temporary at best. But what if the perfect creator of the universe, who has all power and might and love and wisdom and strength and honor and glory, says you are beautiful and I came for you. There's the only love that you need that will change you. You will abandon every other love that doesn't satisfy. Make Jesus your center. Let him be that core motivation in your life. And it's going to give birth to a genuine humility because you did nothing to earn that love. But it's also going to give you a genuine confidence <coughs> because you cannot lose that love. Jesus' love will never fail. And so this woman having taken of this water, runs back to the very people who cast her out 
And does she say, I know something you don't know? That's not what she says. She says, you've got to come and see this because it's for you too. That's what she says. We got it wrong, guys. We got it wrong. She became the first missionary for the church. 2,000 years later, we're still telling her story. We got some smart people in this room. We got some accomplished people in this room. But I don't know how accomplished you'd be that 2,000 years from now, anyone's going to be talking about you or me. But we're talking about this woman who nobody cared for in her day. You see that? Jesus Christ makes new. He renews. He gives new life. Make Jesus your center, and you will drink from that same living water. If you feel dirty, instantly you will be made clean. If you're spiritually tired, you will be refreshed. If you're spiritually thirsting and longing, you will be satisfied. If it can happen to this woman, it can happen to you. If it can heal this woman, it can heal you. If it can redeem this woman, surely it can redeem you. And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, you would have asked him and he will give you living water. The only prerequisite is that you need it, that you ask for it. Let's pray.